Welcome to In the Bible with Jason Worf. We're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments called God Wrote Love, and this message is entitled In the Image of God. What would it be like if we were to see the universe from God's perspective? Just imagine that for a minute. What, what does God see when He experiences the universe of His creation? Now, we are constrained by certain laws, laws of light and gravity. Uh, light is the fastest thing in the universe. It travels at, what, 186,282 miles per second. For what we understand, there is no matter that can travel that fast. Nothing passes the speed of light. And they theorize that if we could, then we could travel backwards in time. Right? We're, we're limited by light and by gravity. So the only things we can see in the universe are the things that light brings us. And gravity is somehow in the, middle, in the midst of that because gravity can make things dark like a black hole. And I don't understand it all. I'm not a scientist. But what, what I do know is that when we point a telescope at the sky, what we're seeing is light. And that's all we can see is the light that, that comes into our eyes. What if we uh, eliminated the gravity issue and we could do whatever we wanted in the universe? What if we eliminated light, the, the light problem, the speed issue, and we could travel anywhere? What would we see? God said, let there be light. Now, what if we were to go past the beautiful and complex planet that God has made for us and, uh, and go beyond our solar system uh, so that we can see galaxies and eliminate the laws of time and observe galaxies as they move through space and collide and entangle, uh, fly through maybe what you might call the web of the universe and see its structure and complexity and recognize, as you see all of these things outside the, the, the laws of gravity and light, that God is bigger than all of that. God created that. He designed that. The laws of light and gravity, He made those. He's not constrained by them. Now admit it, you want to put God in a box. You want to constrain God by what you're capable of understanding. Do you recognize that about yourself? Maybe you didn't think that you did, but, but I guarantee that you do. It's our natural tendency to, to say, God, I want you to fit into my own understanding, into my little box. You want to define God, or you want Him to be able to be defined by your vocabulary. You want Him to conform to your ideals of behavior and emotion. And, you know, honestly, there's really no other way that we can relate to God except through the things we know. The language that we speak, the emotions that we experience, the behaviors that we are familiar with, we want God to, we want to understand God through that because that's the only way that we can experience God is through our limited perspective on the universe. But God cannot be limited by His creation. We can't put Him in a box. It just doesn't work. He's more vast than all that He has made, so vast that nothing God created can contain Him, so vast that He can be present throughout all time and space. And we have to recognize that, the, that His limitlessness, the limitlessness of the God who created the universe, means that when God takes a personal interest in you and me, that it's intentional. It's not an accident. So God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me 
and keep my commandments. This second commandment is, uh, well, here's my summary. Don't try to put me in a box. Don't, don't try to use one of my creations or worse yet, one of your creations to stand in my place. When, when he says, I'm a jealous God, does that make you think of your own jealous emotions? If it does, try to ignore that tendency. That's not the kind of jealousy God is talking about here. He is the creator. If water were to tell you that it's jealous of you because it wants to be the main drink in your life. Would that be a selfish thing for water to say? No, because we need water. If it's not the main drink in our life, then we have a problem, right? And so the same is true for God. God is wanting our worship. Why? Because worshiping Him is the source of life. Worshiping Him is essential to our being. It's not a, it'd be nice if I was part of your life scenario. No, if God's not part of your life, you're dead. So, so when God says, I'm a jealous God, He's saying that on our behalf, not because of His selfishness. In fact, this word worship contains the word worth. It's, it, if you want to, you could add the TH in there and it'd be worthship, but that's kind of hard to say, so we don't. But worship means that, that we give honor and homage to one who is worthy of that honor and homage. And is there anybody that's worthy of it other than God? Nobody. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a statue or a, a cow or whatever it is, it's not worthy of your worship. Only God who created you is worthy of your worship. In the second commandment, God is forbidding self-willed worship, worshiping God as we choose rather than as He outlines. And so to the Israelites, that meant that they were supposed to build a tabernacle and they were supposed to do these specific services. But God's promise was that this mobile sanctuary would be His house. And He said, build this so that I can dwell among you. This is where God's presence was to abide and where they would bring offerings and confess their sins. Now, Christ fulfilled the symbols, many of the symbols in the sanctuary. And so the Christian church no longer has, a, has the, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. Instead of Passover, we have a, the, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the grape juice that we eat as a, a reminder of the sacrifice Jesus has, has given for us. We have, instead of the labor, we have a baptismal ceremony like Christ did. In a, we die in a symbolic way, and then we're reborn to a, a new Christian life with the Holy Spirit living in us, right? The, the symbols of our experience of our worship with God are a little different. Instead of going to the tabernacle, we come to church, and our church experience is a corporate worship that, that also is intended to launch us back into the world um, as missionaries every week, renewed by God's Spirit and rejuvenated with our desire to, to love others with the love that God has for us. Our mechanisms of worship are designed by God. The second commandment says, don't do this differently than I've prescribed. Worship me in this way. One thing that uh, many like to do is to apply the second commandment to life today, trying to explore all of the opportunities of self-willed worship, idolatrous worship, all this kind of stuff. And we try to out what, what is idolatry. Uh, for example, some would point to the crucifix as an idolatrous symbol. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but um, hanging a crucifix around your neck is maybe you don't worship it necessarily, but some people do. And uh, there, there's this idea that the crucifix is this holy thing and, and you bow before it and pray and things like that. Or others use prayer beads uh, or in other religions, there's prayer wheels. We could talk about pictures of Jesus 
prominently placed on the walls, hoping that maybe that picture would give some kind of a, a blessing to the home. Maybe some people worship even that picture or maybe the pictures of saints. But these icons and these, these um, trinkets and things like that that people use for worship are, are not something that God invited us to use for worship. He says, don't make an idol and use it for worship. And we could discuss also the fact that idolatry is not just an object, but it's a state of the heart. Not just something that you make by hands, but it's a, a false representation of God that we form in our minds or, or maybe alternatives to God that we place into our lives. Addictions, codependent relationships, those kinds of things can take the place of God and be idolatrous. We, we could explore lots of nuance in the second commandment. But, but if you remember, we're actually in a series that's doing kind of the opposite of that. Remember I described that, that, that the law is kind of like the fence around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What the law protects us from is quite a bit smaller than what it allows for. And this idea that God wrote love, that the, the Ten Commandments are less about a prescription for what we should not do and more about a, an opportunity for what we can do and what God God is inviting us into in a loving relationship with Him. And so I want to I talk a little bit about what the second commandment allows rather than what it prohibits. Think about this, this God, this boundless God. When we obey the second commandment and we stop making idols to represent God, things to put Him in a box and constrain Him to our, our expectations and our desires, then we're freed to explore the limitless attributes of God. And to Well, limitless means that you could keep exploring forever and ever right? And, and it seems like I read somewhere, a little, little lady named Ellen White wrote this. She said that we're going to be exploring the science and the song of salvation for all eternity. It's because we have a limitless God that can be explored for all eternity, and there's, there's no end to what we can know about Him. And, and so when we don't have an idol, now we can look up and say, who are you, God? Tell me more about you. Help me to understand you. God's not an idol that's there to meet our needs exactly when we want them to be met and available at our beck and call. We can't set him on a mantle. We can't take him with us in the car. Um, that, that, that's not God. The boundless God reveals a, a significant truth. I hinted at it a moment ago. When we see God as limitless, we have to recognize that since he can't be constrained by us, the very fact that he has interest in us illustrates His love for us. He wants us. He pursues us. God's involvement with our life isn't an interruption for Him. It's not a, uh, an accident for Him. It's an, it's an intentional pursuit, an intimately planned affair where He pursues us long before we know we ever wanted Him. And long after we've brought Him into our lives, He keeps pursuing and keeps chasing and keeps drawing us to Him. We don't call upon God so much as we respond to God's call into our lives. Revelation 3.20 describes it this way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is an intentional action. He showed up at your heart's door and he started knocking. I want in, he says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and, he, and eat with him and he with me. We're, we're the ones responding to God. 1 John 4.19 says it this way. We love because he first loved us. There's a, a response that we have to God's pursuit of us. In this 
unbounded God pursues us scenario. God is so much more awesome than one of these idols that people use to call a God. Those uh, prayer wheels I mentioned earlier, they're interesting, especially the Tibetan Buddhist prayer wheels. They have what they call the tree of life at the center, and wrapped around this tree of life is is some kind of a document with uh, these words written on it, a mantra over and over and over again. They have big ones that are about as big as a gazebo, some as big as a house. And, and those wheels, they have millions of these mantras written in them. And the idea is that God, maybe He's not, maybe He's hard of hearing. Maybe He's, um, how did Elijah put it? Maybe He's taking a nap. And, and what they do is just to make that convenient because who can sit there forever and say some, some mantra, some prayer over and over again. And so they have this series of wheels, each one a you know, a thousand of these mantras are written in, and, and you can walk down um, across a bridge or something and just spin each of those prayer wheels, and it's as if you have prayed that prayer, and, it, and the tree of life sends that prayer up to heaven, and so um, God will respond because of your incessant trying to, to connect with Him. Um, but, but the Bible does not describe God as a God who ignores us. He, he, it describes God as a God who's engaged with us, and yet it, it it describes God as beyond us, not constrained by us. And, and the Bible does describe Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, so I feel like I have a little biblical license to do this. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And please, whatever you think about The Chronicles of Narnia, just put that aside for a moment. Um, and, uh, and, and this illustration, I think, is really fun. In The Chronicles of Narnia, the book called uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a, a story of four young, young people that are transported into a completely different world where animals are personified and they can talk and interact. And there's um, this, this story of evil and redemption. And anyway, there's a, a scene where a beaver is talking to these four young children, and he says that they've been in this winter time in their their world for so long, but Aslan is coming. And they start to ask, who's Aslan? And he says that he's a lion. And the kids are are like, "Is, is he a tame lion? And the beaver says, oh no, he's not tame, but he's good. With the interaction that C.S. Lewis captures, uh, the the challenges we have with God, we want him to be a tame God. We want to put him on a leash and be able to walk him around where we want him to go. We want God to respond to us when we want him to respond to us. But he just doesn't do that, does he? He's limitless. He's our creator. He's bigger than that. And and we shouldn't want to tame God. But God promises that he's good. 1 John says that God is love. It's his very nature to be good. And so the untamable God is a good God that wants to interact with you and me. One experience of this interaction is Moses in the cleft of the rock. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll put you in this crag in the rock. I'll put my hand over you. I'll pass by you. And what you and I want to do, our, our tendency is to say, all right, let me sketch out God. But, but our, our interest is to figure out what does God look like? But, but that's not what God focuses on when He interacts with Moses. What He says about Himself is the important thing that He wants us to pick up on, not what He looks like. And so when He says, show me your glory, God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. God is a good God. Here's what it says, Exodus 34, 6 to 8. This is God talking about Himself. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving and 
iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. These characteristics, I want you to just look at them in a list. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, in love. And, and the Bible puts that steadfast love just to make sure this is a stay with it kind of love. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. These are all beautiful relational qualities about God. And, and then it doesn't stop there, and I'm so glad it doesn't. It also says that He won't clear the guilty and that He'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on, the, on their offspring. That statement, while we could get into it and dig into why it says those things, the, let's just summarize it and say God is a just God. Not only is He a relational, loving God, but He is a just God. And sometimes we don't want to talk about God's justice because we're afraid of it. But I, wanted, I want you to know that while God is untamable, He is good, and, it, and He can't be good without being just. And, and these characteristics about God are still a limited perspective on God. Even though God is revealing Himself, it's just one picture, one side, one facet of who God is. We're going to continue to study about who God is and explore His characteristics for all eternity. So this is just a little picture. And, and while it's a beautiful picture, it's still limited perspective. And I think that's why God wants us to be in His presence again. He, he doesn't want to just have this, what, what He said to Moses back a long time ago, experience with you and me. He wants to be known by you and me, and He wants us to reveal ourselves to Him. He wants a relationship. And so Jesus in John 14 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I, I think I've said this before. That's such more, more of a, an exciting thing than having a mansion over the hilltop. It's having a room in God's house where you can be right there with Him, right there present. And He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. God wants to be known by us. And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you to live in my house. You're, you guys are welcome to come over to my house, but I don't want you to live there. It's no offense. But God says, I don't want you to just come over to my house. I want you to live there. I've got a room just for you. Now, if we're going to be exploring all of God's facets of creativity and justice and love and all the things that God is throughout all eternity, doesn't it make sense that we, we could start now? Now is a good time to start exploring who God is. And I think it's exciting to me to recognize that God wants to be known. He's revealed Himself. The Bible is one of the coolest documents in all of religion, anywhere in, in any religion in the world. There's no other God that reveals Himself. There are gods who stand aloof and have, you know, minions who write about Him. Sure, there's lots of those gods around, but no God that reveals Himself in the way that the, the God of the Bible reveals Himself. Or as God reveals Himself, the best revelation that we have of God is not just through God's Word, but through the living Word, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to the earth, and His statement is that He came to show us the Father, he came so that we could see God. In fact, the, the statement that Gabriel makes to Mary, he says that call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this is, this is John 17, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is uh, Jesus saying how he came to show the Father. And he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then this one is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is God 
the limitless, almighty God of the universe. And so if we want to get to know the God of the universe, then the, the place that we should start is to get to know Jesus, the living Word, God made flesh. Part of the understanding of what it means to not worship an idol is to recognize this worthiness of God, to explore why He's worthy of our worship. We don't worship an idol, instead to understand and worship this limitless God. But there's a second aspect of this command to not make images that uh, I, think, I think we have to recognize the connection between the Ten Commandments and Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, and you find that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, God says, don't make an image and bow down and worship it. But then He says, I made an image of myself. Is that kind of odd? to think about it that way? I think it's, it's more like this. God doesn't want us to make an image to Him and bow down and worship it. He doesn't want us to worship each other, but He does want a reflection of Himself here on the earth. And, and that's something that uh, as, you, as you look at this command, you have to recognize you are an image of God. It's not the design of your body, but it's the innate characteristics that God has designed us with, the, the, the desire for loving relationship, and especially when you look at the family, um, husband and wife, uh, creative power of creating, you know, making children, that kind of stuff. That, that is a, a powerful example of the, the Godhead and how He's allowed us to have and, and put in us a desire for a loving relationship. He's also given us creative ability, not just the potential for having offspring, but He's put in us creative ability in how our minds work. Every single mind is different. Have you noticed this? You ever been talking to somebody and you say something and you think that they understand what you're saying, but then as they respond, you're like, they have no idea what I just said. It's, we, we process things so differently. Yeah, husbands and wife, you both know what I'm talking about when I said that. And, and we, have, we have creative people that are just everywhere, and we have very, you know, regimented engineer kind of people accounting kind of people. You know, there's a difference between a spreadsheet mind and a Michelangelo mind. You know what I mean? <laughs> one is creative in one way. The other one is very creative in a very different way. And when we recognize how limitless God is, we can't look at somebody else and say, because you're different than me, then you're not, uh, you're not as creative or beautiful as I am. What we look like, the expression of our creativity and in, in, in how God has designed us, that is an example of our limitless God. The fact that each one of you is different and still each one of you represents a, a little picture of who God is, is an, a, a profound thing. Doesn't God have such a, uh, a neat perspective on our world? You can't look at somebody and say, because you don't make as much money as I make, you're not as good as me. You can't look at somebody and say, uh, well, they don't sing that well, or they don't play the piano that well, or they don't paint that well, so they're not creative. You can't do that. Everybody it doesn't matter if you're a mathematician or an engineer, a nurse or a mechanic, an administrator, a world leader. It doesn't matter who you are. You are all a little picture of God designed by Him with attributes similar to Him. And, and, and I want to point this out, that, that while we are created in God's image, um, we are not designed to bring glory to ourselves. If you make an idol, then you can look at that idol and say, see that idol there? I made that. And, and it's like there's some kind of a selfishness in idolatry. Always idolatry is going to bring out selfishness. But when we look at God's design for creating us in His image, we recognize that when others see us, they're not going, wow, you're an amazing person. When, it, when we represent God, what we're doing, we're, we're reflecting His character. And people look at us and say, wow, 
who's your God? Tell me more about that God that you know, that you're reflecting. And that's what Peter says when, when he describes our interactions with goodness. He says that others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The result of us demonstrating or reflecting God is that God is glorified. And I think this is why Revelation 14 tells us that the remnant of God's people follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they have the Father's name imprinted in their minds. Verse 12 of Revelation 14, it says, here is a call for the endurance or the perseverance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. When we're honoring, loving, faithful, honest, and content, the world sees a God that is trustworthy, just, faithful, selfless, giving, kind, and good. But when we present to the world a distorted image of God by rejecting His law of love, then people see God as a proud, vindictive, deceptive, shallow, dissatisfied, and selfish God. Who we are tells the world who God is. He says, you are created in my image. I want, I want to put my law in your hearts. I want my, my character to be in your minds. And when people see you, I want them to understand me. You see, idolatry, whether it's bowing down to an image or having a distorted perspective of God in our hearts, idolatry hurts God's image in the world. It, it distorts who He is to other people. In the first sermon in the series, I described that idea that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had this imaginary fence around it, and it's the thing that's inside the fence that we're being protected from. The, you might say it differently than that. I'll put it this way. The fence around the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the outside of the fence, see, we're supposed to stay inside the fence, in, protected by God's law. The outside of that fence was smaller than the inside. Wrap your mind around this for a moment. God has created a protection barrier around us, and that's called the law, the law of love, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. But like in Eden, there was a world of possibility inside the law, and the only thing that was outside the law was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Does that make sense? The inside is bigger than the outside. The, the world of possibilities that existed then, I think, exists today, and, and this is why when Galatians and Romans talks about the law, it says you're no longer under the law. I'm going to just substitute, you're no longer outside the law. And this idea is that when you go and bump into the fence or try to climb over the fence of God's protection, the fence of God's love, then that's when the law starts to hurt. That's when it, that's when it impacts you. But as you live inside God's Spirit, as the Spirit lives inside you, I should say, then we're not bumping into the law as much. Our lives are, are a pattern of God's love, God's love for others and, and love for God. That, that pattern doesn't bump into the, the, the fence as much, right? So we're no longer under the law. We're no longer climbed over that fence to sit in condemnation of the law or being condemned by the law. So we've, we've looked at a couple areas in this second commandment that kind of help us Ill understand what it means to be on the outside of that fence, or not the outside, the inside of that fence, in all the possibilities that the law enables. And, and that possibility includes at least two things. The first thing is that God, He's limitless. We can't contain Him in anything that He created or that we created, but He is open and interested in us knowing Him. He's revealed Himself to us through the Bible and through Jesus, and He invites us, get to know me. It's going to be an eternal pursuit, but get to know me. And I think that's the first category of things that the second commandment enables. This, the second category was this idea that I suggested that God has created us as little images of Him to show the world what He's like. And He's promised that He's going to, that, that He who began the 
good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That, that the, the goal of reflecting God's image is something that God takes a personal interest in, and He actually puts Himself in charge of in our lives. But, but then we have an opportunity to, to respond to Him and to say, okay, God, I'll let you do that. I'll let you deal with my anger. I'll let you deal with my, my passions. I'll, I'll let you be in charge of my interactions with other people. You can create a loving person inside me, God. And when we do His will, when we allow Him to work in us, to will and to do of His good pleasure, then the world gets to know a picture of God they haven't seen before. So I want to I end with a commitment, and I want to ask you to do something. The, the first thing I want to ask you to do is to explore Jesus. Who is He? And if you haven't read it recently or haven't read it at all, there's a great book called The Desire of Ages. That is a story of Jesus' life, and it is a beautiful perspective on who God is. It's a really great book. If you haven't read it recently, pick it up and read a few chapters as your devotional experience alongside the Bible and get to know Jesus. Study the Gospels. Explore what the New Testament says about Jesus. Go back to Isaiah and read the suffering servant chapters from Isaiah, I think, 42 to 50 eight or, or, or 60 or something like that. Like, explore the Jesus of the Bible. Get to know who God is. The second commitment I'd like to invite you to make is to surrender your life to God and allow Him to write His law in your heart and to make you into a reflection of His character that others can see and glorify the Father in heaven. He has been and He will continue to pursue you. He's been knocking on your door. Will you let Him in? Will you respond? You've been listening to In the Bible with Jason Ward. If you'd like to visit us in person, come on Saturday mornings to the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church, located on Highway 95, just six miles north of Bonners Ferry. You can also find us online at bonnersferryadventist.org.